Welcome to Injury Prevention Podcasts. My name is Rod McClure. I'm editor of the BMJ journal Injury Prevention, and each month I chat with a distinguished researcher or practitioner, and together we explore the narrative of their injury prevention careers. My guest today is Dr. Abraham Bergman from the Departments of Pediatrics of, of Harborview Medical Center and the University of Washington. Hello, Abe. Hi, Rod. I've just been reading a fascinating account that you've given us of uh, your personal disappointments in injury prevention over very many years. And you started off by saying you joined the University of Washington Pediatric Faculty in 1964. That's right. You've been a long time in the field, must have a lot of stories to tell us. (laughs) I don't know about that, but uh, I've lived a while. I'm 87, so I've been around a while. And um, you also describe yourself as a, uh, somebody, a practitioner of political medicine. What do you mean by that? Well, uh, what it means is that uh, trying to improve health using the political process. Uh, and I sort of was involved in politics before I was involved with medicine. So I grew up in a politically active family. And so I've always uh, seen... Uh, politics and influencing politicians as a way to get things done in the health field. Do you see yourself as a clinician or a, a public health practitioner or what, what branch of medicine do you actually practice? I, I, I very much am a uh, pediat- practicing pediatrician. Uh, I'm a teaching, joined the, uh, I've worked at two wonderful hospitals, Seattle Children's Hospital for 18 years and Harborview Medical Center for 30 years as a, uh, as a general pediatrician. And uh, as part of that, being a pediatrician in large hospitals like that, uh, I've uh, experienced and taken care of hundreds of injured children and always uh, as any child comes in with an injury, one thinks about, well, how could this have been prevented? So uh, I am a clinician who also does research and teaching. Right. And that must make immediate sense when you see an injured child in front of you. Exactly. So you started off uh, with a notion of of, um, head injury prevention through bicycle helmet campaigns. Tell me that story. Well, uh, I moved uh, from Children's Hospital over to Harborview Hospital um, uh, and in uh, 1982 or three, and uh, that's a major trauma center. And so uh, my colleague, my close friend and colleague is Fred Rivara, and one of the most important things I did, I helped start the Harborview Injury Prevention Center and recruited him to direct it. So he and I were very close colleagues, and we took care, involved in the care of head-injured children, and saw head-injured children from bicycle trauma, and thought, well, uh, helmets are used in baseball, and hockey, and all kinds of sports. Uh, it, it should be uh, with uh, used to protect children uh, riding bicycles. So we decided to embark on a community campaign to uh, promote the uh, wearing of uh, 
uh, bicycle helmets by children. And being uh, also part of a research center, uh, we did this as an intervention to be evaluated, starting out with observations of children in Seattle and children, controlled children in Portland, Oregon, where the helmet campaign was not promoted, was not uh, in, uh, active. And so what we did was uh, over a, about a two-year period, we're able to increase, market increase the uh, number of children wearing uh, uh, helmets from 2% to 16% in a year and a half, and it gradually improved. Now it's up to 70%. 2% of the population wearing helmets is a remarkably low number, isn't it? Not so uh, Children. And th th this was in... This was in about 1987. I'm not sure the exact year. Uh, well, it's not surprising because the price of helmets at that time was uh, uh, as much as the price of a bike. And helmets were only sold in sporting goods stores, in, in, in bicycle shops. And part of our, cam I mean, our campaign was, uh, took several forms. One was we had to lower the price of it. And, and then we had to get parents to understand that it was a serious problem and take the action to uh, buy a helmet uh, when they bought a bike. And the third thing was to get kids to use it. And so we organized a coalition that uh, each, uh, worked on each one of those uh, three objectives. And so lowering the price, you know, we got the price down to $15 uh, through uh, uh, cooperation with a large retailer. And from that time on, we were able to promote, promote it. And we did things like uh, have physicians hand out discount coupons. And the, what the, the idea was to run it like a political campaign. Mm. And when I say that, is that in politics you try and get people to vote a certain way for candidate. In this case, you try and change behavior. And that's what's, to my mind, missing in the injury prevention field and public health in general is far too much uh, concentration on education. You know, if you give people the information, they'll take the right uh, uh, path. Well, we did some very hard-hitting commercials, mm -hmm. and we a very powerful part of our campaign were victim stories, and had when we had an injury victim, the head injury victim at Harborview, uh, the families uh, uh, always uh, agreed to tell their stories on television or newspaper stories, and that's very powerful. Mm -hmm. uh, so it was a very broad-based campaign. So what are the barriers to these sorts of broad-based campaigns? You've given us a couple of um, points which we can use. Well, I, I think in the paper, uh, disappointments, uh, to me, the greatest disappointment was we were so successful in Seattle. And first of all, heady, um, bicycle helmets is just about the easiest campaign in injury prevention. Because there's no opposition. There's no, everybody believes in it. And it's not expensive to do. Oh, by the way, part of our campaign, uh, we, we got the helmet usage rate up, but also research uh, 
Thompson and Thompson and Fred Rivara uh, using group health, uh, now Kaiser Permanente, to show a reduction in admissions, uh, a reduction in head injuries from uh, 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 children wearing helmets and and that that the research of that the sort of the efficacy of it was shown like four or five years after we uh, embarked on our uh, campaign. Mm-hmm. The great disappointment to me is we had this success and we took it. We said, well, why not do this nationally? Mm-hmm. And so we took it to the American Academy of Pediatrics, uh, Fred Rivara and I, and said, look, uh, it's in, why don't you get campaigns similar in states around uh, all over the country with a coalition of head injury, uh, it's called the Brain Injury Foundation, and the uh, Cycling uh, Bicycle Federation of America. Those two organizations were willing to uh, participate, and the Academy of Pediatrics didn't. And to me, that's disgraceful. And to this day, one goes around the United States and sees in major cities there aren't kids wearing bicycle helmets. And in fact, the bicycle helmets are worn by relatively educated affluent communities. You don't see them in um, low income. Uh, and, and that's a tragedy. Do you think that was uh, in part because of lack of 100% consensus in the social yeah, well, uh, No, it was just the way organizations work. The problem was lack of leadership, lack of inspiration. One has to get energy from something like this. We got our energy from taking care of uh, brain injured children. Hmm. Uh, Taking it to the Academy of Pediatrics, which is a group of, you know, thousands of pediatricians in the United States, they they have committees that, that deal with, like they have an injury prevention committee but the members all have their own priorities and they could not, they can't, they're paralyzed by democracy. They, they can't prioritize injury problems. And, you know, they have a list of four or five or six. And that's what I emphasize in the article is this uh, paralysis uh, and no leadership is saying, well, you got to pick a priority. So it's actually the, uh, bureaucracy of large organizations and lack of inspired leadership. Okay, so can I try and put a few things together here and you can correct me. You've said that you're primarily a pediatrician, so that gives you the the passion to recognize an urgency of need. Mm -hmm. Uh, You've got a background in politics which recognizes or, or helps you understand how to affect change at the population level and politics basically just is that, isn't it? And you've used both of those to try and uh, create a public health benefit and to some extent being stymied by a lack of individual leadership. And you're recognizing that the challenge for leaders is that they're not close enough to the real need to develop the passion or the, or the prioritization that's needed. Correct. Then the next one is the community campaign to promote safe storage of firearms. Yeah. And th- that was interesting because, uh, um, in the United States, as you know, and uh, is that uh, gun control and firearm con- um, curtailment is a huge political issue. Uh, and uh, 
I never thought in my lifetime I'd see any significant changes or improvements. We seem, the, the political sands seem to be shifting a little bit in the United States. Uh, but anyhow, uh, we took the, the issue of a non-controversial issue of uh, safe storage that rather than saying uh, get rid of guns, we, we plan to direct a campaign to gun owners and to say, you know, if you have a gun, get a, a lockbox that kids can't open. And we had a wonderful uh, student at that time who was a gun owner himself, and he visited uh, police instructors and gun uh, shop owners and asked them how they store their uh, guns. And universally came back uh, the idea of a push-button lockbox. Uh, things like gun locks or trigger locks are not effective and people people are legitimately afraid and they want the boogeyman coming up the stairs they want to be able to push a button so that turned out uh, an effective way of, uh, of gun storage and so we planned a community campaign and we chose uh, and this is the political way we don't, didn't want that to be a government campaign. You want police, and we, we had police officers and firearm instructors as spokespersons and make the pitch and with a coalition involving gun owners uh, to promote this. And we planned to run this campaign, but we didn't have any money to do it. And in the final example that uh, we might have time to talk about, you've actually tried to work with business which is really you covered the territory here, haven't you? Well, injury prevention is always going to be a, a field uh, lacking money. And because there's no constituency, injury victims don't band together um, like uh, cancer patients, uh, you know, other diseases, because they don't see themselves uh, akin to each other. And so there's never going to be a constituency to get money, and we were very, I was very, and Fred Rivara was hugely interested by Ragnar Berfenstam. Mm -hmm. he, he visited the Harvard Injury Prevention Center when we started, and we visited he, him in Sweden. And his words of what you need, uh, you know, to stick with me, and he pointed out that in Sweden it was a 20-year campaign to lower injury rates, but the, the first thing is that you have to have community support to do this. And the way you get community support is you have to make them aware of their own injury problems, and that's having injury data that's localized, like the weather data. And the second thing he said was you form coalitions with interest groups, like water safety with Red Cross or automobile safety. And you, you go with, you know, insurance companies have been the only ones who really interested in injury to, a, to an extent. Uh, and they provided some early support for them now uh, and not so much. But, yeah, you work with who you have. And the Safe Shoe campaign was uh, I got involved because my, my older parents um, – I got them to wear athletic shoes with Velcro closures. And it just seemed in fall prevention, 
that just seemed a reasonable thing to do. And uh, uh, again, there was research on that, but the research, uh, the research from uh, our center wasn't published. To, it was uh, completed about two years after we tried to start our project on getting elderly people to wear athletic shoes. And we did have a shoe company that uh, agreed to uh, sponsor it, and try, but there was no support to run a campaign. And you would have thought that there may have been some, some commercial benefit for the companies in that context. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah, I, I, I went to Nike and said, look, why don't you guys, this is a huge market, the elderly. Why don't you do a commercial of elderly people jumping up in the air? And um, they, they laughed and they thought that was funny, but they said, now we've invested too much money in the youth market and thanks, goodbye. They were very nice, but yes. no, we couldn't. There were, uh, no, they, but it, it makes sense and it angers me that like the U.S. Preventive Services Task Force makes recommendations on prevention of fall injuries, but safe footwear is not even mentioned as a possibility. And it's so easy. Uh, mm. I live in a retirement home now, and ta you know people do wear safe footwear right. because it's it's something stressed. Yeah, prevention's in part about um, what can produce the biggest effect, but it's also in part about What's the easiest intervention to adopt, too, isn't it? Well, th that's very much true. You take the hanging fruit. You take, yeah, knock off what's the easiest first. That's absolutely true. Mm. You know, I've been involved in trying in pedestrian injuries. That's very difficult. There's so many, you know, different yeah. factors. So, yeah. Uh, so yeah, that's uh, you. You take if something is in well, something like say footwear or gun storage or bicycle helmets are easy. Well, I knew I was going to have a very interesting half hour chatting to you, Abe, and you've come through. This has been uh, enlightening for me, and I'm, I think all of us uh, just uh, feel the privilege of talking to people like yourself who've been around since the very, very early days of our field, really, at least in the modern form. Injury prevention 1964 was about where it began. Um, yeah, I've enjoyed it very much, Rod. Thank you. We've been listening to Professor Abe Bergman from the Harborview Medical Center and University of Washington. Talk to us about uh, some of the disappointments, but I think really some of the major contributions that he's made to the field for the last 60 years. Um, <laughs> for anyone wishing to learn more about uh, the topics that we've covered, I encourage you to visit the journal's website on injuryprevention.bmj.com and you'll be able to listen to injury prevention podcasts at that site uh, on the first Thursday of every month and get access to them on your usual podcast platforms. Mm -hmm.